Please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I have enjoyed being here. My family has enjoyed being here already, even though this is just the first day of the missions conference. Uh, some missions conferences we go to, we feel refreshed as, uh, as we travel across the country, and this is one of those, even with just the short time we've already been here, good fellowship with your pastor and a kindred spirit. Uh, I love the other missionaries who, have been, who are with us for this conference, and I've appreciated their fellowship as well. And we love missions conferences, period. And it's a good thing we like them because we're in about 25 or 30 of them a year for the last 12 years. And uh, I appreciate the careful planning and organizing that goes, has gone into this meeting. And uh, your pastor is a good administrator and I appreciate the carefulness and uh, thought to detail that he gives. Pastor mentioned this morning that I'm the director of Worldview Ministries and uh, we are a Bible translating ministry, and I like to make the distinction between Bible publishing ministry and Bible translating ministry. We're not Bible publishers. There are plenty of good Bible publishing ministries, such as Bearing Precious Seed, and I know you uh, collate John and Romans here. You've done that for many years. Uh, but our focus is solely on Bible translation, and our primary target is language groups that have no scripture. I'll give you some of those numbers in just a moment. Um, but we have currently eight translation projects going on around the world right now. Our staff, including our full-time staff, associates, and translators on the field, uh, our ministry has grown to 40 people serving with us in one capacity or another, either full or part-time. And God has just done way more through our ministry than, than I uh, envisioned that He would. And we sure are thankful for the privilege of being involved in such a sacred task of giving people the Word of God. We're working in language groups that have no written language. So you start with absolutely nothing. You have to create a language for them. Actually, you don't create what they speak, but you have to put it in, on, in writing, create a writing system for them, and then write primers to teach them how to read it. And then you have to win them to Christ and disciple them so they can help us translate in their language. So we have a huge task ahead of us. And we'd ask you to pray for our ministry in those respects, but uh, we sure, sure are grateful for the privilege to be here. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> I'd like to pray and read uh, the first eight verses. For time's sake, I'll read the first eight verses. We'll refer to other verses in chapter 1 and 2, so please keep your Bible open. And after I pray, I'm going to read these verses, and then I'm going to give you some statistics that I believe we need to hear if we haven't already heard. I know you're probably familiar with some of the terms I'll use, such as unreached people group, and then I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, Lessons from Pentecost. So let's pray first. Lord Jesus, once again, we plead for your Spirit's fullness, both for the preacher and the listener tonight. We plead that you would move through us, in us, and you would work in our hearts tonight. Lord, shake us from whatever unspiritual condition of the heart we find ourselves in, whether it's apathy, uh, whether it's neglect, uh, whether it's carelessness or drift, wherever we find ourselves, I pray tonight that we will right now yield ourselves to the working of the Spirit. And may we look to you in faith right now and say, Lord, whatever you say to me tonight, I'm ready to hear it. And I pray that you'll do that, and I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. 
And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. <clears throat> and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? There are 17,000 and 12 people groups in the world today. A people group is defined as an assembly of individuals that have a common language, religion, culture, and ethnicity. As far as church planting is concerned, it is the largest group within which the gospel can be spread as a church planting movement without encountering the cultural barriers of acceptance or understanding. So when God uses the word nations in the Bible, he is using the word ethne or ethnicity. Every time you see the word nations, particularly in the New Testament, maybe with one exception, and then the word Gentiles, it is the word ethnicities. So God views this world as ethnic groups of people. Uh, 30, I'm sorry, uh, 7,085 out of those 17,012, 7,085 of them are still considered unreached. Technically, the, the, the term unreached means that there are less than 2% of the population are claim to be an evangelical Christian. And they don't have the sufficient resources to, to begin or sustain a church planting movement. They need help from the outside. Practically speaking, the word unreached or the term unreached means they have no access to the gospel. There's no church where they live. There's no Bible in their language. There's no missionary preaching the gospel anywhere near where they are. They are unreached with the gospel. They have no access to the truth. At least 3,100 of those 7,085 groups, and some sources say that it's over 4,000, are not only unreached, but they're also unengaged. The term unengaged means everything I just said, defining unreached, but it also means no one's coming. Practically speaking, it means no one's coming. There is no church planting strategy underway uh, consistent with the evangelical faith and practice. So nobody's coming to plant a church where these unreached people are. No one is engaging them with the gospel. So they have not only no access, but they have no one coming to bring them access to the gospel. I'm afraid sometimes when we say unreached people group, we think of uh, a group of 50 people sitting around a village fire somewhere in Africa or, or Asia. But the term, I'm sorry, the people group population, if you were to total the unreached people groups, you'll find it to be about three and a half billion people. The largest unreached people group in the world is 240 million people. That is the Sheikh people of India, North India and Bangladesh. India itself has 2,274 unreached people groups. The 10th largest unreached people group in the nation of India, I'm sorry, the 25th largest unreached people group in the country of India is over 10 million people. That's an indictment on the church, would you agree? There are 7,099 languages spoken in the world today. 7,099 languages, and out of all of those, only 670 have a whole Bible. 
Some have a New Testament, some have a portion of Scripture, but if you figure it all out, you get 3,787 languages that have nothing. 3,787 languages with not one verse. When I said we're a Bible translating ministry and we have a huge task ahead of us, I really mean there's a huge task ahead of us. 85% of independent Baptist missionaries are in the same 15 countries. Only 8% of our missionaries are going to places in the world where the most unreached people groups live. There are 14,000 independent Baptist churches in America with a membership of 2.5 million. And we're sending out 4,000 missionaries. That's one missionary for every 3.5 churches or one missionary for every 625 members. I think we could do better than that. There are 46,000 Southern Baptist churches in America. I'm neither promoting nor demoting or denouncing Southern Baptists. I'm giving statistics. They have 16 million members and they're sending out 3,900 missionaries. That's one for every 12 churches or one for every 4,210 members. These statistics are an indictment on the church that was given the Great Commission 2,000 plus years ago. I want to give you, as I introduce this message, I want to give you a couple of thoughts before I get to the main points. First of all, you can advance that to this. The Great Commission can be accomplished by the church in this generation. If you believe that, would you, would you say amen or owe me or grunt or something? Amen. It could be done. We have, the, we, we have the technology we need. We have the, the uh, resources we need. We have the money we need. And you've heard this said before that this generation of Christians must reach this generation of lost people. And I don't believe God ever gave commands that cannot be obeyed. So when he told us to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, he meant for us to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. But we found all kinds of ways to exempt ourselves We've found all kinds of reasons why we can't do what we clearly know God has commissioned us to do. I can't go to the mission field. I can't be a Bible translator. I can't give that much money to missions. And my old college professor used to say, you're absolutely right. I can't, never could. That's why half the world, 7,085 people groups are still unreached and 3,787 language groups still don't have one verse of Scripture. And I believe that God, I'm convinced that God did not give the church the Great Commission so we could play our part in the program, hoping that the next generation will take up the slack. The Great Commission demands complete obedience, not voluntary part-time participation. And so we need to take on the task as if it has to be finished before we die. If we did that, we could finish it. But I'm not convinced we're ready or willing to take it on as if we've got to get it done. You've all had times when you were busy, your, your schedule was busy, you had company coming and you've got to get the house cleaned up and the yard mowed and you've got all these things to do and you think, I have to get these things done. And I think if we had the same urgency about the Great Commission and we felt like this is the command of God for us and we have to get it done, perhaps we'd be a lot further along than still 7,085 people groups without the gospel. Then I want to say what I've already said, we have the people and resources to finish it. We could absolutely do better than sending one missionary per four churches. 
one missionary for every 625 members. In the days of the Moravian missionary movement in the mid-1700s, at the height of their missionary zeal and, and their missionary effort, they were sending one missionary out for every four church members. And it takes us four churches. Go with me back, please, to uh, Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. But look what it says at the second half of this verse. Now this is as Jesus, you know, is about to ascend back to heaven. But he says at the end of verse 4, second half of the verse, But wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. Ye have heard of me. Don't forget that phrase. Chapter, thir- I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we find the apostles named, and we find in verse 14 that they all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication. There were others with them, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and others who, who were the number of, of them, about 120 in verse 15. So we have, we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all culminate in a great commission. I wish you had time to study all four of those examples. And then we have the book of Acts that begins with the commission. Verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Not I wish you would be, not I hope you can be, but ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost. So after the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, the church was empowered, please notice this, for the task of reaching the world. After the Holy Spirit came, Peter preached and 3,000 were saved. Later, another 5,000 were saved. And the church grew, some say, historians say, to more than 100,000 members. And then the church scattered and other churches were planted and, and other regions were reached with the gospel. And according to Paul, they covered most of the known world during his day. And Pentecost was the catalyst of a worldwide missions movement. And I want to suggest that we we should take a look at what happened at Pentecost and learn some things from it because I believe it's an example of what the Lord wants to do with the church today. It's an example of how He wants to use His people today, an example of what He can do with men and women who are wholly surrendered to the Spirit of God and will allow the Spirit of God to accomplish the Spirit's purpose in us. Rather than us calling upon the Holy Spirit to help us accomplish what we would like to see done, If we would yield ourselves to the Spirit of God and let Him come in and take over and do what He wants to do through us and through our church, I believe what we're looking at is a Pentecost. I don't mean that in literal terms because I do not believe these were were unknown languages, these tongues that they spoke in. They were known languages. And I do not believe we should be expecting cloven tongues of fire to sit upon each of us because I don't think this story is prescriptive for the church. I think it is descriptive of the spread of the gospel to the nations. And there are four principles, four foundational lessons that I'd like to share with you from this story. And this, and this is the first half of the message, and I'm not sure we'll get to the second half. Four lessons from Pentecost. Are you ready? Number one, the church exists for the glory of God. The church exists for the glory of God. What is the mission of God? I mentioned it this morning. The mission of God is His determination to declare His glory and draw people to Himself from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. The mission that God is on is that everyone would know who He is. 
and that everyone would be drawn to him in salvation. God is not willing that any should perish. You know that. But God intends to display his glory to the whole world and then extend his grace to the whole world. So what are we looking at at Pentecost? In verses 9 through 11, we won't read them for time's sake again, but you have 17, perhaps 18 different people groups and language groups represented. So right here in the first story of the coming of the Spirit, remember what Jesus said in verse 4, chapter 1, which uh, wait here for the promise of the Father, which ye have heard of me, been talking about this. I've trained you for this. I've talked about this. I've promised you the coming of the Holy Spirit. I've told you all that's going to happen. I've commissioned you to go to the ends of the earth. And so right here in the first example, the very first time the Spirit of God comes to the earth, we see that God wanted this church to know, I'm sending my Spirit for the propagation of the gospel to the nations. The sending of the Spirit was not so you could see miracles happen in your midst. The sending of the Spirit was not so you could claim the prosperity gospel that's being spouted everywhere today. And I'm saying the church exists for the mission of God, and here's what I mean. God did not devise the mission in order to give the church something to do. God established the church to carry out the mission that already existed. God was on a mission from the beginning of time. It starts in Genesis 1-1 when by, the, by virtue of the creation of this world, He declared His glory, Psalm 19-1. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is the beginning, it is the opening act of the display of the glory of God. And it continues all through the Bible and we, we, we may be able to talk about that more this week. But God didn't say to the church as He was getting ready to go back to heaven, Look, I'm going back to heaven and, and, and look, I, I've got a plan. I came up with a plan and here's what I want the church to do. He devised the church. He organized the church. He established the church and he empowered the church to bring glory to his name by the propagation of the gospel to the nations. So one writer said it this way, the church doesn't have a mission. You know, everybody wants a mission statement these days. Corporations have a mission statement and churches got into this mo mode for a while and I'm not against having a statement that defines what we're about. But the church doesn't have a mission, this writer said. The mission has a church. The mission's more important than the church. The mission existed for 4,000 years before the church was established and ordained by Christ. It's just another part. It is the church age and it is the responsibility of the church to continue to propagate the glory of God. This church exists to glorify God among all the nations. I believe what Jesus was teaching the apostles in the early church was, you heard me talk about this, I taught about it, I preached about it, I worked miracles, I, I, I trained you for three and a half years, and I've promised you, John 15 and 16, the Spirit's going to come, and when He comes, here's what He's going to do. I've talked about this, and verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 4 of Acts, stay right here and wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard of, heard of, heard of me, I've told you about all this, and Acts chapter 2, this is what it's supposed to look like. The church exists for the mission of God. Number two, every member is to be part of the mission. Every member. I don't know how many were there. I don't know. In, in, uh, in chapter 1, we find 11 apostles remaining because Judas had betrayed Christ and was, was now dead. They chose in verse 13, I think it is, Matthias, to replace Judas. And perhaps 
the women were there and the 120 mentioned in verse 15 were possibly in this upper room. But I want you to think about something in this and I want you to look at a couple of verses here in chapter two with me. This is not a church service with a preacher up front. Look at it. Let's look at the description carefully. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, notice these pronouns. Maybe you want to circle them. I have them circled in my Bible. Chapter two, verse one, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound of heaven from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and notice this phrase and it sat upon each of them. So whoever the they is here, the cloven tongues of fire sat on everybody in this upper room. Verse four, and they were all, how many of them? all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave who? Them utterance. Then it says in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed. So what is happening here? Please notice this is not a church service with a preacher behind the pulpit and the people sitting in the pews. This is a prayer meeting. They were gathered in this room waiting for the promise of the Father. And when the news got out that cloven tongues of fire were sitting upon these people and they were proclaiming the gospel, the crowd gathered. I, I don't know about you, but as I grew up, I never pictured Pentecost quite like that. I pictured it as a huge room full of people and there were a couple of preachers up front or perhaps the 11 apostles and they were doing all the preaching. But this was everybody at the prayer meeting. You know what I believe it illustrates for us? Everybody's supposed to proclaim the gospel. Amen. It's not just for the pastor and the assistants and the missionaries who were sent to a foreign field. This was not the preacher empowered to proclaim the gospel. This was the people of God empowered to preach the gospel. The Great Commission is not for the chosen. It's not for the specially called. And I'm afraid that we have created a false, un, unintentionally perhaps, have created a false dichotomy between goer and sender. Because we have, we have created two classes of people. We have one over here that says, God's called me to the mission field. And so that means I have to go where God sends me and I have to rearrange my life and my priorities and I have to do everything different from everybody else because God has called me. And these, the, this means that I must have some kind of a gifting or this is the way we look at them. They have some kind of a gifting and unique uh, set of talents and abilities so they can go to a foreign field and preach the gospel. And then the other group is over here saying, I'm not one of those. God has not called me. So we've created this false dichotomy between goer and sender. And may I say every one of us if we're not going, we have to be sending. But what we've unintentionally created is this class over here that says, since I'm not one of those, I get to decide what I do with my life. I can choose where I want to live, and I can choose how I spend my, I can choose what job to get and what career I want, and I can choose how to spend my money and what kind of house I buy and what kind of car I buy. I get to make all the decisions for my life because God didn't choose me to be one of these specially called people. And can I suggest to you that could be, there's nothing could be further from the truth. There are not two classes. All of us are called. All of us are chosen. All of us are commissioned by God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That might mean you go to a foreign field. It may not. 
But not going to a foreign field doesn't in any way whatsoever exempt you from the obligation to be a part of the mission of the church. The third lesson. The Spirit of God was the power behind the work. Notice please in verses 2 through 4. This rushing mighty wind came in. Verse 3, the cloven tongues of fire. In verse 4, they were all filled with what? The Holy Ghost. This was not a work of the apostles' doing. This was not a well-thought-out strategy. It was not a finely-tuned program, and we're really good with fine-tuned programs. This was the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit fell on these folks, and the question we need to ask ourselves, Spirit fell on this church, and the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we long for this today? How long has it been since we saw the power of God at work in our lives, the power of God at work in our church. Why do we think we can carry out the work of the church in a sterile fashion, with finely tuned programs, but without the Spirit of God? Psalm 119, verse 126 says, It is time for thee, O Lord, to work. When's the last time we prayed that prayer? Could I say to you tonight, we need revival? And I don't mean what most preachers mean when they say, say revival. They, I don't know what everybody means by that word, but we don't just need revival that will make us better husbands and wives and, and citizens. We don't need revival that will restore, just, just revival that will restore harmony in the church. Here's what I think we need. We need a revival that will break our attachment to the world. A revival that will break our complacency, will shatter our apathy, and a revival that will result in a people sold out and wholly given to the mission of God and completely abandoned to what He wants. I get the privilege of preaching in churches, and, and I believe our churches are full of unlisted, unenlisted soldiers, casual Christians, consumer Christians consuming what the church has to offer with one foot in the world and focus on our career and our money and our conveniences. And may I say it's time for the church to be the church and it's time for the world to hear the gospel. Amen. So the church exists for the mission and the glory of God. Every member is to be a part and the spirit of God is the power behind it. We need to not only plead for His power, but we need to yield ourselves to Him and say, when your power comes upon me for the propagation of the gospel, whatever that means for me, I'm willing to do it. Wherever you want, whatever you want, for as long as you want, I belong to you. Lesson number four, and I love this one, it's my favorite one. God had a plan from the beginning. And I've referred to this already, but in verse 1 or verse 4 of chapter 1, he said, you've heard about this. This isn't new. I've been talking about it. In verses 14 through 17, notice these words, please, of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now, if you want to circle some words or underline something in your Bible, I love this phrase right here, the first four words of verse 16. But this is that. That's a, that's a very explanatory phrase. This, what you're seeing right here, is that 
and read on, which was spoken of or spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass, verse 17, in the, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And we could read all that and we could, we could exposit that and talk about the Old Testament significance of this prophecy. But I want you to see in verse 21 where that prophecy led. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. This is God's plan from the beginning. And Peter stands up and declares to the crowd, he had, a, he had enough Bible knowledge. He had enough sense to recognize that what was taking place here was what Jesus had told them was coming and what he had read in the Old Testament law. And he said, I want you to know what we're witnessing right here. These men aren't drunk like you think. What we're witnessing right here is the fulfillment of the mission of God for the church. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Peter understood it was part of something bigger than just an isolated event with cloven tongues of fire and every man hearing in this, this is strange, everybody hearing it in their own language, but this has been a long time in the making. It started when the world began, as I said earlier, <coughs> and we're witnessing the fulfillment of the mission. It's an exciting time when God wants to use the church in a new age of His grace to reach the nations with the gospel. And so my question is, does what we see here look like the church today? The church at Pentecost was a part of a mighty move of God to touch the nations. But if I could meddle a little bit, could I say these things? We live in a land today with churches in survival mode. And pastors who struggle to meet the sometimes trivial and petty and sometimes ridiculous demands and expectations of congregations with little or no interest in what happens beyond the walls of this church or any church. Sometimes they don't care anything about the church. All they care about is their family. In two different locations, one in Minnesota, and I can't remember where the other one was, but within a period of just a couple of months, two pastors of young churches, young church plants, both said the same thing to me. They said, well, we have visitors come and they fill out a card and I go to their house and I, I want to make contact with these people and see where they are spiritually and see how we can help them. And he, he said, I find these people visiting our church and when I go visit them, they say to me, um, Pastor, what does your church have to offer me and my family? That's a consumer Christian. And may I tell you, the, that's the wrong question. The right question is, what do you have to offer God? What do you have that you can offer to the mission of God. And we need a new generation of churches who will not just talk about it, but will allow God to do a mighty work here in this place to impact the nations. We need a zeal and a passion that will change our perspective. We need a zeal and a passion that will turn us from enduring the mundane to expecting the miraculous. Generally speaking, we've marginalized the Great Commission and we have made it a program among many rather than the dominating task of the church. And my challenge for us tonight is what if we could reverse that culture right here at Open Bible Baptist Church? I'm in no way suggesting you don't care about missions. You have a heart for missions and I thank God for it. But what if churches like yours were to just get completely on fire for the mission of God? What if we could begin sending missionaries by the dozens. What if it were no longer a rare or odd thing for somebody to walk the aisle and say, God's called me to be a missionary? What if that became a normal thing? What if it happened once a month or every two weeks or however often God wants it to happen? I think he wants it to happen a lot more than it does, don't you? Yes, 
If we could just see God set a few pastors and churches on fire with his spirit for his mission, perhaps the flame would catch on with others. And perhaps we could begin reducing this number of 7,085 unreached people groups and we could begin reducing this number of 3,787 languages without one verse of scripture. And I'm not suggesting we need a mass movement among our whole country. If we just had a few that, that God could set fire to and others could watch us burn and catch on. What if this became a place where we frequently heard God or heard people crying out for God to send laborers to the unreached fields of the world? What if that were ever present on our minds? May I assure you, it is ever present in the mind of God. The prayer request Jesus commanded us to pray is pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. When's the last time you prayed for laborers? I'm not being unkind tonight. I'm trying to challenge you biblically. I'm trying to challenge you to, 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 to obey the Lord and get in this mission because it's the most important thing happening in this world. What's, what God is doing in this world is more important than anything else I can imagine. It's more important than anything else I could ever be involved in. I've got plans. You, I, you may have plans and agendas and desires and ambitions, but they all are nothing in comparison to the desire of God. What if the culture of this church became, Lord, whatever you want, wherever you want, for as long as you want? We are being called to the mission, commissioned to get involved. So what does God want from you? See, as I said this morning, there is no question as to whether, or whether you are part of the mission. The question is, what part of the mission are you, to, are you to be involved in? What do you need to change? What do you need to give up? What needs to happen in your life so the Spirit can empower you? I know we're already Spirit-filled in the respect that when we got saved, we got the Spirit of God. He indwells us. Amen? But you know, there's another side to that, and that is yieldedness to that spirit. So what would you need to do in your life tonight so the spirit of God would not only dwell in you, but would empower you? There's a difference between existing as a Christian and, and thriving in the mission of God. Can I say it that way? What would you need to change? What would you need to give up? What would need to happen to make the church today a picture of Pentecost where the spirit of God used us to get the gospel to the nations.